What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UJ Podcast. I'm Tyler, here as always with my co-host Curtis. You can follow us on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA. Uh, you can also email us at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we definitely love to get your thoughts on the show, guys. If you like the show, that's awesome. Let us know why. If you hate the show, that's cool, too. Let us know. We're in a constructive criticism. I have no issue with that. Let us know what you guys want to hear. Is really, you guys are the ones that drive the show. We want to make sure we're producing stuff that you guys want to hear. So let us know your thoughts on the topics we discuss, how we're doing, all that. You can also uh, find the show on a variety of different podcasting platforms. Definitely Dog Sports Radio, where the whole thing got started. But you can also find us on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn. And you can subscribe to us and review us on any of those platforms, especially iTunes. It would be awesome if you had a chance to just uh, tell us what you, think, what you think about the show. Subscribe to us. They'd be a little easier for you guys to access the show. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and move into this. And, uh, guys, again, I apologize for being off our normal Tuesday-Thursday off-season schedule uh, yet again this week. But I literally just got back from vacation. So uh, the first thing I'm doing is put away clothes, put away all that stuff, and now recording a show. So we're going to go with uh, the Wednesday-Friday shows again just for this week. Next week we will be back on our normal schedule. But for now... It's the end of the month, and around these parts, that means listener mailbag time. Uh, and you guys, you really outdid yourself this time because uh, you sent in an impressive collection of questions. Some really good stuff here. The response was great as always, and we're going to yet again, it looks like we're going to have to break the mailbag show up into two shows to make sure we get to everything. And really just an awesome mix. You guys did a great job sending us a, a mix of football questions, recruiting questions, basketball, administrative questions, even a little baseball so let's go ahead and crack these open. All right, Kurt, you ready to start with this? Yeah. All right, so let's move into the first one. I think we'll, we'll try to hit eight or nine of them here today, see what we can get in with the time limit we got here. But uh, number one is a recruiting question. With the losses of Adam Anderson and Brenton Cox, who do we turn to for pass rushers in the 2018 class? Curtis, I don't know if I have a definitive answer on this. What direction would you lean in? I mean, they're still heavily after. You know, I consider Micah Parsons and people like KJ Henry, but I mean, you don't know who we have legitimate a shot at right now. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the first two there, uh, Micah Parsons, KJ Henry. Like, those are the big names, right? Like, those are the names that if we landed either one of those guys, we might forget about Adam Anderson and Britton Cox because those are elite prospects. Micah Parsons out of Pennsylvania, he's the number three overall prospect right now in the two four seven two four seven composite ratings. You got KJ Henry out of North Carolina, who's also a top fifteen prospect nationally at number fourteen. These guys are legit, but how serious are they? What kind of consideration are these guys really giving us? How seriously are they looking at us? Micah Parsons. I mean, from all accounts, it seems like he's a heavy Ohio State lean. I don't really feel like we have a great shot at him. KJ Henry, on the other hand. There have been some reports out there over the past month or so that, that he's given us a serious look. So I don't know. I mean, we're not out of it there with either one of those guys. I think Henry might be more of a likelihood than Parsons, although I don't know if either of those guys are all together likely. Now, some guys that I would look at that would I think we have a better shot at landing would be a guy like Caleb, Tan- Caleb Tanner sorry, out of Miller Grove. He's 6'4", 220. Uh, and some other guys lit further down the board, Aziz Ojolari, he's, he's visited Athens recently, and he lo- looks like now that we've missed on Anderson and Cox for the time being, he's a guy that we've kind of moved to in our board. He's uh, uh, about 6'4", 225, uh, pass rusher out of Marietta. Uh, then you got Kingsley and Igbari, 6'4", 235. 
Uh, another guy, Stefan Wynn, but you know, and we—he's a top 100 prospect, right there on the fringe, top 100 in the 247 composite rankings. But for me, Stefan Wynn is not as much of a pass rusher. He's more of a, a Jonathan Ledbetter type guy, a five tech defensive end in a three four scheme. Uh, he's not an explosive type pass rusher. A really good player who I'm really high on, really advanced for his for this stage in his career. But he's not a pass rusher. So of those guys, Kirk, Caleb Tanner, Aziz Ojolari, Inigbare, any of those guys stand out to you as somebody that you'd be cool with us landing? I mean, I, yeah. I think as long as we land someone that's not a three-star. Well, all, the, all those guys are. I mean, outside I'm of wins. Like, I'm talking about like. Along you, so one of those guys along with another guy. Yeah, I'm talking about, and also, you know, not someone that's like a borderline type three star, you know, that we're just throwing scholarship to because we're desperate for numbers. I'll say this about both Caleb Tanner and Aziz Ojolari. I think both of them are underrated right now. They're in the three to 400 range overall in 247 composite ratings. Uh, I, I honestly, look, I haven't seen, I, I will be straight up with you guys, I have not seen either one of them live, uh, but just looking at tape. I like what I see from both of them. Now, there's some rawness to their game, especially on Ojolari's side. He's he's an explosive athlete, but very raw at this stage. Doesn't you know play with outstanding leverage. Doesn't do a great job with his hands right now. But that's that's to be expected of a guy. So uh, uh, of a guy at this stage in his career who hasn't had that that training. Caleb Tanner on the other hand is a little bit more polished than Ojolari, but I also really like his explosive and his athletic ability. Uh, off the snap there. Um, Ojolari with, and Marietta, they play him a little bit inside, a little bit outside. He's clearly a pass rusher uh, at the next level. So I really think Tanner and or Ojolari could be in line for a bump up the road. I don't know how much of them. We're not talking about five-star status. Maybe inside the top two, four, seven, something like that. Um, but both those guys, I'd be I'd be really good with landing either one of them because I think they can be really productive pass rusher on the next level. Uh, but man, it would be really be nice, like you said, to to kind of match one of them up with one of these bona fide guys, like a Micah Parsons, a KJ Henry, even get him back into it maybe with Adam Anderson and Britton Cox. Yeah, I mean, just just last weekend, Anderson was back in town. Yeah, they were trying to keep that under the radar a little, keep that little hush hush. But he was back in town. And I, do you think the doors closed off? I mean, is that a sign that hey, you know, we still are very much in this thing? Um, you know, I really do think we have still have opportunity. You know, uh, since we're from the Gwinnett area, the one. The, it kind of reminds me a lot of the Robert Kimdichi recruitment. You know, he comes out, commits with uh, two of his teammates to Clemson at the time, and got one of them. You know, some both those guys, you know, weren't really big on Clemson's radar. Got them both scholarships, and uh, ended up leaving later in the process. You know, I'm not saying that's happening, but it kind of reminds me of the thing where he goes out and gets his teammates. You know, especially the one whose best offer was uh, um, App State. Oh, you're talking about Chapman. Or Griffin, yeah. Jaquan Griffin. No, Chapman's a guy that's kind of legit, but Griffin, yeah. I mean, you're looking at – I mean, if you're looking at anything that's D1, it was a group of five team. Exactly. And that, you know, it kind of reminds me that can be – you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it is – I mean, the fact that he's already visiting and they're trying to keep it undercover, I mean, kind of shows that we still have an opportunity. I think ideally Anderson wants to play at home. And, look, I don't know the guy personally, but just from reading reports of uh, recruiting rep- of uh, journalists who do this for a living – and just re- looking at his words and what he said, I mean, from all accounts, he's a Georgia boy. He he has the in-state pull. He wants to play home. He's a Georgia guy growing up. He wants to play for the in-state and I, school. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure when he committed, um, I'm not sure, I, I'm maybe mistaken, but his mom had passed away. Yeah, I, I believe and, you know, that's correct. Don't quote me on for that. Georgia. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a situation where this guy, if all, like, 
he's kind of pulling two different directions. It seems like, yeah, don't know, but it seems like it just from the outside looking in that on one hand, he's a Georgia guy and desperately wants to play for the in-state school. But on the other hand, he's also a loyal friend and wants to get his teammates, his brothers, the guys he's been playing with since he was a kid, like in Little League. He wants to give them an opportunity to play at the highest level as well. And, and the idea of playing with all of those guys together is really appealing. So which way do you go? Right now, the loyalty of the friends has won out. Now, we've got, a, we've got some time to kind of swing it back in our favor. Uh, yeah, the, the best thing is that's not the end of the process where we're usually having these things right. happen. Absolutely, yeah, we, yeah. This is not like it happened, you know, the start of February where we have a couple weeks to to get get back in the fold. Uh, do you going back to his his teammates Chapman and Griffin? Do you think that at at some point eventually we're going to fold, and if we can't get him back into the uh, fold without offering them, that we're going to pull the trigger and offer both those guys, or maybe just one of them? I think if we offer any of them, it'd be Chapman, I believe, who's yeah. the one that has the offers. He's more of a know. legit prospect at this stage. Exactly, and I think that they could sell him on that. And if he comes with those two, I mean, it still looks bad on uh, LSU if they drop Griffin. I mean, you have to think about yeah. their PR and that. It'd be really interesting to see what would happen there. I mean, that's still I, I still say it's a long shot that we get him back in the fold, but I don't think that door has been closed. I think he's still listening. He's still receptive. And say what you want about Kirby Smart and company with their first year on the job on the field, but these guys can get it done recruiting. I know it doesn't look that promising right now in 2018, but, but give them time, guys. And I, I still have confidence in these guys in the recruiting aspect of the job. So we'll see there. Uh, Cox, you know, I'm not, I'm not sold that we're not going to have a chance with Cox down the road. I think that battle's still far from him. Of course, he's committed to Ohio State, so they're the leader in the clubhouse clearly. But I don't think that door's closed either. Uh, would you give us a better shot, a better shot with Anderson or Cox getting back into the conversation with? I think Anderson. <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, I want to say that too. Uh, yeah, he, he, he was he's, he was originally committed, so it shows uh, shows a lot with just that. Yeah, yeah, and look, I mean, the guys that we're after outside of Parsons and Henry, going back to the original question, you know, who do we turn for for pass rush in the 2018 class? Caleb Tanner and Aziz Ojolari, as, as, as much as I like these guys and like their potential, they, right now they are not Adam Anderson. They are not Britton Cox right now. Uh, Anderson and Cox are, are ahead above them right now. They're more polished at this stage. They're more advanced uh, than where Tanner and Ojolari are. It doesn't mean that Tanner and Ojolari cannot get there at some point. They do have the raw material that you're looking for. They have that explosives that you really want out of a, an elite pass rusher. But there's a little bit more work to do there. I don't know if they're gonna, they would make as early of an impact. Um, so I'm, I would be I'd be totally cool with getting Tanner Ojolari. I'd welcome them into this class, but I also, like I said, I'd like to couple that with maybe an Anderson or a Cox or a Parsons or a Henry. I don't think Parsons is likely, but maybe a Henry. We'll see. There's still a long way to go, but there are some names for you if you're looking at who we might possibly turn to in this 2018 class. Uh, all right, next one. This uh, this is a dude. This is something that has always irked me, man. It's always under my skin. And I thought this was an awesome question. And it is uh, here. It is in your opinion. Is conference pride just a cheap way for people to be "quote unquote" fans of different schools? How do you view the whole SEC conference pride deal? How do you look at that? I don't really believe in it that much. You know, I'll talk about you know proud of being an SEC and the conference as a whole. But when it comes down to it, you will not really see me cheering for an SEC team that I uh, over someone else. You know, um, especially when you have teams like Auburn, Florida, Tennessee. You know, I'm usually cheering for them to lose, even if they're playing someone from another conference. I don't understand. Like, I honestly, I hate everyone else, especially all of our closest rivals. I hate them so much that it is exceedingly difficult for me to ever, under any circumstances, bring myself to cheer for them, unless it has a direct impact on where on our uh, well being and where we're going to land at the end of the year. So I just I, I totally don't get it, man. I I've never gotten this. 
I think it hurts us far more than it helps us. And I, I see the other side. I, I understand on one hand why some people are all are chanting SEC, SEC at all these non-conference games. I get it on one hand because on one hand it creates this perception that if if the SEC, if you are playing in the SEC and the SEC is the best conference, that you are playing in the best conference, which is something that you can sell to recruits. And it also may make fans feel better so that we can all tell ACC teams that are 8-4 and four, that 8-4 and four in the SEC is entirely different than 8-4 in the in, or 8-4 in the SEC is entirely different than 8-4 in the ACC. It kind of allows us to retain that sense of superiority that we're all kind of longing for naturally. Um, we, the idea essentially is we may not be the best in our conference, we may only be 8-4, and four, but we're still better than you, which is just, uh, it's... It's ironic to me, to say the least. Uh, And I think part of it also goes, like, the reason we want to chant SEC, SEC, and be all about conference pride and cheering for SEC teams over everyone else, I think goes back a little bit. Tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think it goes back to just a sense of Southern pride. Uh, And just that, I mean, that lingering resentment that a lot of us down here still feel towards the rest of the nation going back to the days of the Civil War. I mean, I know that I don't give you a crazy history lesson, but I think there's a part of that there. You know, part of our identity in the South here is going to be bound up together against everyone else. So I think that's part of it. And, you know, football is the one is one of the the last bastions of the South where we still dominate and we still are the best there is out there. Um, but for me, it's all about being the best. Uh, I'm not interested in bragging that our eight and four is better than your eight and four because we play in the SEC. I want to be the best in the SEC, and then ultimately the best in the nation. And, and to and that see, end, I think another thing too to help with the SEC pride. You know, builds it up even more is when we had the eight national championships in a row, or champions in a row. Right. Kind of builds up the mystique of the SEC. So, if you but, were but, but, but when we're not one of those teams, how does that help us? Well, yeah, I was just saying when you are closer to the top, though, that that's one of their things that you know the champion comes from. Like when we lost to Alabama in the SEC championship. Yeah, I mean, and I see that you can sell it to recruits. See, I'm not big on it because I still believe that in, at any time anyone can be beat. Right, and I, I, I get it that you can you can go into the living room and recruit and say, hey, you come play for us, you have a chance to play in the best conference of football. You'll be competing against the best week in and week out. I get that to a degree, but I also want to say that in no way does it benefit us for our rivals to win football games. Answer me this. How in the hell is Florida beating Michigan to open the season going to help us? How is Alabama beating Florida State to open Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta in the national spotlight? How is that possibly going to help us? How? I just, I don't see it. Because to me, Florida winning that game, Alabama winning that game, gives them more to sell recruits and makes our job recruiting those same prospects even more difficult. Because we didn't win those games. We're not, comp- we're not winning SEC titles right now. We're not in national championship games. Especially when you're talking about in-state prospects around the metro area that may not be Georgia, na- Georgia natives. And they don't necessarily have those in-state roots for us to pull on. When they see Alabama beating Florida State in the national spotlight to open Mercedes-Benz Stadium. When they see Florida beating Michigan and Jim Harbaugh, if that happens. When they see that. That just makes our job even more difficult when our rivals are having success. It does not help us for our rivals to have success. I just, I just don't see it. I really don't. I mean, for me, we have plenty to sell on our own merits as a program. We don't need to rely on the laurels of the SEC as a whole to convince recruits to come to Georgia. And like I said, plus I hate those teams. I never want them to win. I never want Florida to win a game ever, ever. How about this question? When you're watching games. And it's not games that we're obviously we're not. It's not us. We're not directly involved in it. How do you determine your rooting interest? Like, how do you decide 
who you're rooting for. So do you have like a second team? Because I don't buy into that at all. Like the idea that my second favorite team is so and so. No, no. It's it's if you're a Georgia fan, you are a Georgia fan. There is no second or third favorite team. So when you're watching other games, how do you decide your rooting interest? Oh, I um, I just look at what's best for Georgia. Yeah, it's just, for me. It's the same thing. As simple as that. In every single game I watch, and I am a connoisseur of college football, but in every game I watch. And I, I usually have a team I'm rooting for. I rarely is it. Uh, I'm indifferent. I don't care who wins this game. Usually, I have an, an, I have a team I'm rooting for, but that is based entirely on what helps us the most. For example, I hate South Carolina. I really do. I can't stand them. Uh, my in-laws have a, a lake house in South Carolina. We have to go there sometimes and deal with all those crazy people, and I just I can't stand them. But if we need South Carolina to, for instance, knock off Tennessee to maybe put us in the SEC title game one year, then for three to four hours. I will be the biggest South Carolina fan on the face of the earth. And then right after that, I'll go back to hating them completely. So to me, it's all about what helps us the most. And when I'm watching games, like if, when, when I turn on Alabama versus Florida State uh, to open the season, look, man, Alabama winning that game is not going to help us. I just don't see it. Or Florida, maybe a very simple Florida against Michigan. I hate Jim Harbaugh. I think the guy's trash. I don't like him at all. He's a great coach, but I don't like the guy at all. But you know what? I'm still going to cheer for them to be Florida because Florida win that game, giving Jim McElwain some of his cell recruits to kind of help him recruit because he's a guy who's been struggling recruiting, that's not going to help us at all. So, dude, for three to four hours, go blue. Uh, you know, for me, that's how it goes. All right, uh, next question here. Um, uh, interesting question. I, I, I don't know if I've seen this all too much, but I've seen a couple places here. Uh, why are some people picking us to lose to Tennessee again? We should be better than them. You know, I don't think it's like last year where the prevailing thought was that Tennessee was going to beat us and they were going to win the ACC. So I don't, that's not happening right now. But I will say there's been a few places where I've seen them pick Tennessee to beat us. Uh, you know, look at the I, Vegas odds. They, they put our over under it. I think it's just a toss-up game and them getting that edge because it's a home game for them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, again, not everybody's saying that we're going to lose Tennessee. I haven't seen that. I have a lot, I've seen a lot of places where they have us beating Tennessee. But if you go back to the Vegas odds, they have our over-under right at eight. So that would have us, you know, in their view, at losing four games. And, you know, where do you find those four games? Tennessee might, might be one of those. So if, for, for those people who are picking us to lose to Tennessee again, uh, man, outside of the fact that, that game is in Knoxville, I'm not sure why they are. Okay, can you give me a legitimate reason why Tennessee should expect to beat us other than the fact that it's in Knoxville? Um, you know, it's just one of those things. I think that we have to prove that we can win on the road. Under Kirby Smart. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, we, uh, we well, won a couple games on the road. Two years ago, we should we were the better in Tennessee, but we lose. Different staff, though. Totally different circumstances. But yeah, I mean, I agree, but I'm just saying that's what they're going off history. Well, yeah, I mean, anytime you play in, in Knoxville at Neyland State, Neyland State, I mean, it's it's a tough environment. I mean, I hate going. I mean, I actually I love going on that trip. Knoxville's a, I I think it's a trash town but for a couple days it turns into a football mecca so it's pretty fun there for a football weekend it's great for a football weekend to Calhoun's on the river good stuff um but I hate going there in that it's always a very tough environment for us to play and I I never feel confident even if we are superior vastly superior talent wise I never feel confident going in there because it's a tough place to play um and you play basically playing in a giant erector set but that's neither here nor there I don't know. I mean, they've got they, look. They've recruited well for the first couple of years under Butch Jones. That has fallen off the past couple of years when he no longer can sell to them. Hey, we're we, we got new energy. We're starting something new here, brick by brick. You can't sell it anymore. You can't sell playing time because now you you've got a couple of good recruiting classes guys. So they've they've dropped off a little bit in recruitment. They still have some solid players, but man, they lost so many different speakers. And you lose your different speaking quarterback in Josh Dobbs. You lose your best receiver in Josh Malone. You lose one of the all-time defensive greats in your program's history in 
and Derek Barnett. You lose your best DB and Cam Sutton. You lose your best linebacker and Jalen uh, Reeves Maven. I know he missed a lot last year, but you're you're losing a lot of players, losing both running backs. And I know there's some talent there just ready to emerge, but man, that's a lot to replace. And those are some serious difference makers that you've got to replace all in one year. And I just think we have more coming back. I think we our defense is going to be a potential top 10 type unit that uh, at that point in the season hopefully can hold that offense in check. I mean, we'll see who emerges for them. Do you have any indicate like any inclination on leaning one way or the other on who's going to win that quarterback job for them, whether it's going to be Dormandy or Garantano? Not at all, really. I think yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, watching their spring game, Dormandy, you know, he, he, he completed a high percentage of his passes. But Guarantano seems like the more of a dual threat type guy who Butch Jones has liked to go with in the past. So I don't know where they're going to lean there. So it's hard to say there. I don't know. Um, but would you say it's fair that we are the more much? Well, I don't know. Would you say we are a much more talented team or just eh, a more talented team? I think we're much more talented across the board. I do too. I mean, I know our offensive line is still a sign of weakness, a point of weakness until we see something different. Receivers have to emerge, but I feel really confident in the talent that we have amassed there and some options that we will have. I think some guys will emerge. I think we're a much more talented team. I really do. There's no we have, There should be no excuse losing that game. Even though it's in Knoxville, um, we should win that football game. We really should. All right, next one here. Let's Actually, let's go on to this. What's the latest on Zamir White? Do we have a chance with him? Now, look, uh, guys, I was jumping here real quick. You know, we've said this before many times. We are not the recruiting reporters. We don't go out there and interview the recruits. We, we evaluate them. We watch them. We watch their tape. We watch them live. We watch them in camp settings. We don't talk to these guys. So I don't have any direct quotes from Zamir White other than what I've seen reported on various recruiting sites, you know, 247 Sports, uh, Rivals, all of those, Dog Nation with Jeff Sintel. But amassing all those together, Kurt, what's your read on where Zamir White stands right now? Um. You know, the biggest thing, I think it's just down to three teams, really, Clemson, Georgia, and Ohio State. Um, that's really all we're hearing. Um, but I think he has some legitimate interest in Georgia. Who do you think is our biggest competition there between Clemson and Ohio State? I think Ohio State. Yeah, man. And look, I think, I honestly, look, I don't know. And Alabama's all there in there a little bit. From what I understand, it State is our biggest competition there, and they have come on strong of late. And there's been some uh, crystal balls. There's been some reports coming out from whether it's Rivals or 247 saying that he might possibly be leaning that way. And Actually, I- I'm seeing a bunch of different conflicting reports, whereas it used to be all Georgia, right? Like He was he was a dog. It was just a matter of when he's going to commit to us. But now as it gets closer to his commitment day, which I think is June 27th, it's like his mom's or grandmother's birthday, something like that. Um, as he gets closer, you're starting to see some different reports out there. Some saying Ohio State, some saying Georgia, some saying Clemson, some some saying Bama. The closer it gets, the bigger the big time prospect he is. The teams are going to know that time's running short. Yeah, you're right. They'll put a bigger push in there, and sometimes you see the kind of disinformation as you get closer to a, a a commitment, especially when these it's these players who. Everybody feels like they have them pegged where they're going to go. They want to they want to surprise the world. They want to keep people on edge. They don't want to be predictable in their decisions, so they kind of throw some misinformation out there. Although, from everything I understand, Zamir White is not that kind of guy. Uh, he doesn't necessarily love the recruiting aspect of this and wants to get I it over the with. Telltale sign is, you know how uh, we were talking about Davey, uh, the guy from uh, um, Bainbridge, I believe, decommitting from yeah, Alabama. Pierce, yeah, yeah um, the biggest thing is, you know, we I think we have a shot at him. I mean, it's down FSU and Georgia, really. But we're not giving him really much interest because we're putting all of our stuff towards White. Yeah, well, I I think Damian Pierce is way down our board. I think our top two targets right now, from what I can gather, 
And yeah, I don't see to see their see our recruiting board, but definitely Zamir White. I think Master Teague is really high up there, prospect out of Tennessee, who I'm really high on as well. Uh, I don't know, man. It's a tough. One. I think it's closer than it was, and I don't. I, you know, at one point I was really confident we were gonna land him. I'm still confident, but I'm not really confident anymore. Whatever that means. Um, I still say that we're probably the favorite based on what we read and what you see. But I don't know, man. You just can't take anything for granted in the world of recruiting. You absolutely, you just can not take it for granted. I hope we land him. I, I think he's he's the kind of guy to be a difference maker for us. But we'll see. I don't know. It's interesting here as we're getting within a month or so of his recruitment or his uh his commitment. Uh, all right. Next question here. All right. This is an interesting question. Going back, this might be a little bit before your time, man. I don't know if, how much you can offer on this. One. I'm just kidding. You probably know plenty. Uh, does our defense in 2017 have the ability to be as good as the 2002 vaunted Georgia defense? Is that before your time, man? Are you are you cool with that one? I mean, I remember some. I think the biggest difference is we don't have someone like a, a David Pollock, you know. Like, yeah, we don't. Hey, go through like someone that will change the game. Yeah, do we I have those disruptive better. presences like that? I don't know if we no, do. I, I think Ledbetter may develop it, or he's developing it. But he's not going to be a passer like Pollock was. That's yeah, not his Pollock game. Was just, I mean, he was a. I mean, he, he's in his own league. And, and that's just not necessarily Ledbetter's game. Well, and we also need to say that we play a very different system. That was a four-three defense, whereas now we're a three-four defense. I know we play a lot of even-man fronts when we're nickel sets. We play that majority of the time, but still a different game where. A guy like Jonathan Ledbetter is not playing that pass rusher position. We have other guys to do that. And exactly. It's great for him to rush the passer, but it's not his job necessarily. Uh, uh, I have sources close to, uh, with Ledbetter saying, you know, his main job is to hold the edge. That's pass rushing secondary for him. You know, so that's one of the biggest. And why well, I think he's a he can change the game pass rushing. That's not his full, his main responsibility. Yeah, and, and he's more so of a pass rusher on obvious passing downs when we move him inside because that's what we're moving him inside to do, get him matched up on a guard where he could beat those guys in the pass rush situation nine times out of ten. But if, in your base, in your typical set, like you said, I mean, his primary responsibility is to set the edge and play the run. That's and a 5 10 defensive end in a 3-4 scheme. That's what they do, where it's a little, a little different for Pollock. Um I don't know, man. Like, God, man, that, that defensive line, dude. Guys like Jonathan Sullivan, Kedrick Golston, uh, Darius Wynn, Ken Veal, Gerald Anderson, all these guys are on the roster back then. I, like, Trent Thompson has the potential to be better than all of them, but he hasn't done it consistently yet. And outside of him, I mean, I really like the guys who got up front with Clark and Rochester. I don't know if any if they match up to some of those guys that were on that front in 2002. Um, you had Robert Gathers also on the team, Will Thompson. If you look at the linebacker, I mean, I love our linebackers right now with Roquan Smith and Natres Patrick, but are either one of those guys Boss Bailey caliber? No. I don't know. I, I don't. I mean, Boss was just a different animal, dude. I mean, 6'3", 230, 235. I mean, guy could jump out the boom. I mean, blocking kicks like he used to block. I mean, unbelievable. Tony Gilbert. I mean, that's not even mentioning our, our secondary. You know, Kentrell Curry. You got Greg Blue back there. Greg, Greg Blue and Thomas Davis both in the same team. Sean Jones at free safety. Good God, man. Like, our, our secondary in 2002 was... Light years ahead of our secondary this year, right? Yeah. I mean, not even Bruce Thornton, 10 Jings on the team then. Uh, Demario Minter and Corey Bryant. I mean, dude, a secondary, no contest, was significantly ahead of what our secondary will be this year. I mean, our secondary is going to be solid this year. Just, I mean, when you look at those names, Corey Bryant, Demario Minter, Kentrell Curry, Greg Blue, Sean Jones, Thomas Davis, Bruce Thornton, 10 Jennings. I mean, come on, guys. That's ridiculous. So, I think our defense is going to be really good this year, but I think the 2002 defense is probably the best defense we've had in the past 20 years. You know, I I, I can't think of – I mean, we've had, we've had some good defenses. Uh, 
2007 defense really kind of came on towards the end of the season there. It's a really good defense. You know, we had some points in 2012 where we were really good. Mm, but no, I, I don't know if we'll be that defense. It's a different scheme, different coach, different time, different era. Offenses are different. I mean, the rules are different nowadays too, where they favor offenses tremendously, much more so than they did back in 2002. Um, so it's, it's just a different context, but man, that was a hell of a defense back then. All right, let's move on here. Uh, all right, another cool question here. So with the annual SEC meetings taking place this week in Destin, Florida, and all the rule changes and other issues on the agenda, what would be the one rule you would change in the SEC if you had the power? One rule, Kurt, in the SEC, what would you change? Lineman blocking downfield. Oh, dude, I didn't think about that one. Yes. Absolutely, because such an advantage these up tempo spread offenses, man. We're, I mean, we've talked about this before. Defenses don't know they don't know what to do because you read what you read the the sets of the offense. Are they firing out in a run block? Are they are they dropping back in a pass set? And when they fire out four yard, three four yards out, down the field, you read run, you fly up field to defend the run, and then they throw a pass or a run pass option right over your head. So it's very difficult to to defend there. That's a good one. Uh, I'm going to go with a different one. It's not necessarily a, a rule, per se, but maybe how we structure the conference. I would go, if I could change anything about the SEC, I would move to a nine-game conference schedule. Nine-game conference Would you be with me on that? I could live with it. See, I, I mean, I get what we don't right now. I mean, the Big Ten's moving to it this year. The Pac-12's already been there for a while. The Big 12 plays the round robin. They play nine conference games. The ACC and the SEC have been holdouts, although I think the ACC is closer to moving in that direction. And we, and the SEC's position, I understand, it's essentially been, we've been fine without it. We've been getting teams in the playoffs. We've been getting teams in the national championship games and winning national championships without going to nine conference games. So why would we put up an extra loss for uh, every year out there for our teams? If you play nine games, uh, there's going to be a loser in every single game. So that's more losses on the SEC schedule, which might keep teams from getting into the college football playoff and in the national championship game. I get that, but for, I'm looking at this from the fan perspective. I, I am just so freaking tired of playing baby seals, man. And I know Nickel State almost beat us last year, whatever. I, that's an anomaly. I am so tired of watching it. And other fans are too. I, I still go to all those games. I will never miss an opportunity to go to Summer Stadium. I, it's just in my DNA. I cannot do it. I just cannot allow myself to do that. And I stay throughout all those games. I want to watch our backups get in and see what they've got to bring to the table. But it's not the same, man. It's not the same thing. I want competition, dude. I want to go out there. I want big-time environments. I want, And also, in the SEC, I hate the fact that we now with the, with the 14 teams in the conference – we only, if it's not our cross division rival like Auburn, we only get to travel to uh, campuses on the uh, from the other division once every twelve years. Once every twelve years, it sucks, man. As, as someone who travels to every single game, I love it. I live for going to these all these games, going to different campuses, experiencing those environments. I, I love it. I, I eat it up, man. And not to be able to go to some of these places, like we just went to Oxford. We're not going back to Oxford for another twelve years, guys. Not happening. It it sucks. I mean, we still A and M's been in the league for years now, and we still haven't played at A and M. We're not going to play at A and M for another what? I think another seven or eight, six or seven years, something like that. And I want to go there. I want to go to the experience game. I want to experience the midnight yell and all of that, all the patches they bring to the table. So, if, and, and yes, I, I agree that's selfish. I know, but from my perspective, I want a nine game conference schedule. And to add on to that, I would also like a rule where we only play Power Five teams in the SEC. But that's never going to happen unless there's a uniform rule 
where all conferences do that or where all Power Five conferences only play each other. And I don't think, think that's ever going to happen. I'm just tired. I'm just tired of seeing these these ridiculous games. And, I, and look, I don't want us to do that until everyone else does it because that puts us. It does put us as at a competitive disadvantage. I understand that. If we were the only league to play Power 5 teams exclusively, I understand that puts us at a competitive disadvantage. But I would be in favor of making an NCAA-wide rule, or at least the Power 5 rule, Power 5 teams only play Power 5 teams. Would you be yeah, in favor of that? Yeah, but you'd have teams like Boise and stuff complaining. Yeah, I know. That, and that's the thing. You have all these other programs uh, in the group of five who would say, well, you're threatening our very existence by doing that. And you know we rely on getting those big paychecks, those million-dollar million paychecks to come play in the big SEC stadiums. Well, my response to that is it is not our responsibility – to fund those group of five programs and those division two programs. It's not our responsibility. Like it would, it would suck. It, it probably wouldn't be, I understand, especially for fans and alumni of those schools, it would suck if they had to start closing programs like UAB did um, because you're not getting the money. And look, if you look at the TV contracts, I mean, it's night and day. I think uh, there was like, I, I saw a report the other day for the con- for conference USA, their TV rights, uh, the payout, the total payout for the entire conference was just a shade over $2 million. I think it was like either two point three or $2.8 million for the entire conference. It came out to a little bit over $200,000 per team in that conference, per school. Whereas the SEC just gave out over $40 million per team due to the SEC network and our TV contract. So it's a, it's a, it's happened to have nots. And I understand without the paychecks that we give those programs, they might not be able to survive. I understand that. And, and I empathize to a, to a degree with them. But again, it is not our responsibility to subsidize and fund those programs. It's not. And at some point, the fans are going to revolt. And they're going to stop coming. It already happens. You mean, you go to all games, too. When we play Little Sisters of the Poor, when we play those baby seals, is that stadium full? No. Not even close. Not even close to full. Now, they report as a sellout because all those tickets are sold. But people still aren't coming even though they bought the tickets. So at some point, with all the with all the modern amenities we have to, and ways we can consume the game, whether it's you know flat screen TVs, your tablet, your phone, whatever it might be, computers, people are going to stop coming to games if if, if it's baby seal time. They're going to stop, and I, I don't think that's healthy for the game. So I know it's, it might not be healthy for a group of five teams to get sh- shut out, but it's not healthy for the power five teams, the power five conferences to be giving their fans this product. It's just not. It's not at all. So that's something that uh, I've been harping on for a while. And one more thing. I know. I, so that's what I would change. But one thing that I seriously consider, and tell me what you think about this, the targeting rule, man. I would get rid of it. That's NCAA-wide. I know. I know. But if, if – and that's not that's why I didn't go with it because it's NCAA-wide. But I hate the targeting rule. And I, I understand you want to protect players. And I'm okay with it being a penalty, but I'm not okay with the ejection. Where do you stand on that? I'm probably in the same boat. I just think it's so patently unfair to defenders. I mean, a defender could be launching themselves on a completely appropriate trajectory to take out the ball carrier, to make a tackle, only to have the offensive player move his body during the course of the play, which leads to a headshot. It, 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 there has to be some place for intent. There ha- you have to consider that in some way. I know that intent is really hard to determine, but it infuriates me that so much of this is out of the control of a defender, and they have to be removed from the game due to something that in many cases is not their fault. They have no control over an offensive player moving himself, moving his, contorting his body after the defender's already launched himself. So if I could change anything in the NCAA, I'd probably change that. All right, next one here. We've got a basketball question here. What does Yante Maiden's decision to return for his senior season do for the Georgia basketball program? Should this give me reason to finally be excited about Georgia basketball for once? 
I mean, I think it's big, but at the same point, we saw it last year. Yontay is scoring 30 points a game in some games, and JJ and other people weren't showing up, and we still lost, so I don't think it's going to change that much. Well, yeah, let's look at this last year. Okay, so last year we had two All-SEC first-team players, and we still did not make the tournament. One of those All-SEC first-team players is returning in Yontay Maiden. One in JJ Frazier is no longer with us. So can we realistically expect to be that much better next year? No. <sighs> I think, I don't know, I, I'm kind of torn on this. On the surface, you would say, no, we're missing one of two players that really did anything for us last year consistently. But Yontay should take another step forward this year, you would think, right? Should improve his game, maybe develop his range where he can shoot, where he can shoot the, the long ball from different port, uh, different spots on the court, not just at the top there. Um, I also think you're going to see guys like Tyree Crump and Jordan Harris hopefully take another step in their development if Mark Fox will allow them to do so. Um, Juwan Parker is who Juwan Parker is. You know, I, I think Obede, I think Derek can take another step forward this year. So I think we have some guys that stand to, to make another jump this year, but is the jump that they're going to make, is that going to replace the loss of J.J. Frazier? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I will say that Yonta coming back, without him, I, do you think we had a shot to make the tournament? I mean, were you high on our chances? No, no I don't. I mean, I, we had a shot. We could maybe, but I would, that would have depended solely on one of those young guys making a huge leap in year two, and I don't know if you can count on that happening. Um, so Yonte coming back gives us a, our best chance to make the tourney, clearly. It's going to open up shooters on the outside, give guys like Crump and Harris, um, maybe Terrell Jackson, we'll see what he does this year. Give them some more room because he operates so well in the interior. Defenses have to play att- pay attention to him, especially if they double him. And hopefully some of those shooters can start knocking shots down consistently. That will open up some room for Yante down low. We'll see. Uh, but I also say this too. At, while this is definitely the best op- best opportunity for us to make the tournament in the past couple years, with Yante coming back, maybe. I don't know, well, last year might have been a better opportunity. But it gives us a, a good chance to make the tournament. I also think it puts more pressure on Fox. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Because I, I think if, if if he does not make the tournament this year with Yonsei coming back, it is done. Like he has, He's not coming back. At least I would like to think that. I mean, I, I, with McGarity running the show, you don't know. I, I can't speak for him. But it it would reason, it would stand to reason that if we don't make the tournament with Yonsei Maiden coming back, that Mark Fox is not going to be back and probably shouldn't be back. Um, so I think it does put more pressure. Maybe he would have a little bit more leeway. You know, if we got a, another season where we got 20-plus wins, got close to the tournament, we are right there in the bubble and got left out, but he could say, well, Yon- our two leading scorers left, Yontay left and JJ left. What do you expect me to do? I did the best I could with what I had. Maybe he could, he could get another year that way. But with Yontay coming back, I don't think he's got a shot. I think if he doesn't make the tournament this year, he's done. I think he's done. So maybe a little bit more pressure on Fox, which is fine with me. I think he needs to be, have some pressure on him. He's got to make the tournament. He's got to. Got to start doing it consistently. Uh, all right, last one here for today, and we'll save the rest for next uh the next show here on friday so if we don't get to your if we didn't get to your question today guys trust me i promise we'll get to it uh on friday so just check back with us next week the last question for today guy says i saw an interview with jacob easton at a quarterback retreat in california where he was asked about georgia's breakout candidates at wide receiver for the 2017 season if you had to pick one breakout candidate from the entire team for georgia for the 2017 season who would it be I'm going to go lead better. I mean, I think he's had some good years, but I think he's actually going to break out this year. Yeah, so that's – that. I, he was one of two or three guys I was considering. I figured you'd probably go with him. Um, so I did not go with John. Um, although I think uh, – people know who he is, but I think he's. I think you're right. I think he's going to have a monster year this year, and I think people across the league are going to know his name and know who he is, at least people who pay attention. But I'm going to go a little different with you from you there. I'm going to go with Terry Godwin. Here's, he's another guy I like Ledbetter who's done some things. And people – 
your your hardcore fan around the SEC knows who he is, and Georgia fans know who he is, obviously. But I don't think he's broken out, right? Is that fair? Yeah. So I, I think this year, based and look, I know GA is one thing; it's a scrimmage, and I'm not basing it all on that. But if if we use him appropriately, we've been all of it. Look, we've been tough on Terry. I've been tough on Terry. I'll be the first to admit that. But if we use him like he needs to be used, where we maximize his skill set playing in the slot, he will do big things for us this year. He's he's now familiar with the system. He's he's one of a, he's an upperclassman now. He's matured. He's a guy that I think we're going to use properly and make a lot. And he's a guy, he's a guy that's make a lot of plays for us this year. I think he would have done this last year, but with McKenzie emerging, McKenzie's only spot to play offensively was at slot. He couldn't have played outside. So although Terry's a much better slot player than he is uh, a, an out wide receiver, a perimeter player. He, he's, he's better equipped to play outside than McKenzie was. McKenzie would have no chance out there. So with that being the situation, we kept McKenzie in the slot, put Terry out wide, and Terry did solid. He was okay. He did some good things, uh, but wasn't great. However, I think this year where we're going to utilize his skill sets to their maximum effect, I think he's going to have a huge year. I think what we saw at G-Day was only a taste of what's to come. So I'm really high on what Terry's going to bring to the table this year, and we need him to. We need we need a guy to emerge. I think he can be that guy that does a lot of things for us. Helps us move the chains. Might not be the big play threat. I think Javon Williams might be the guy that we hit a lot of vertical shots on the field with more of the big play threat. Uh, maybe a guy like Jeremiah Hallman as well. But I also uh, think Terry can make some plays. I think he can be explosive. But more than anything, he's a guy that's going to control the middle of the field and a guy that's going to help us move the chains and be a, a, a comfort for Jacob Beeson, whoever the quarterback probably is and ends up being. All right, guys. So there you have it. That's uh, that's part one of our May listener mailbag. So again, if you we did not get to your question today, I definitely apologize. That we will get to it uh, on Friday show. So check back in with us then. Uh, remember, you guys can follow us on Twitter at glory underscore uj. And if you uh, are listening to the show and you did not get one of your questions in and still want to throw it in, there's still time. You can get it in. We will include any questions that you guys have on the Friday show if you get in before Thursday night. So you can uh, hit us up on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can also email us gloryujapodcast at gmail.com. Curtis, I'm Tyler. As always, guys, go dogs.